welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. What up, everybody, to another episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you come back for future episodes if you like what you see today. And I know you will because we have two phenomenal guests. And if you are a returning listener or a viewer of this podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we get into the main event and bring up our two guests for tonight, if you are on YouTube, please hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications on new episodes and new content on our Denny Talk channel. Also, if you're listening from Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to your podcast, make sure you subscribe there as well. And we're always welcoming any monetary donations to that Denny Talk platform as we continue to grow and bring on these phenomenal minds in math education. Uh, we accept donations through either Cash App or Venmo. So if you're on Cash App, uh, the handle would be money sign ID talk for Ed. And if you are on uh, Venmo, the handle will be at Kwame SM. Thank you kindly. So over the past, well, these first 14 episodes, we've had a lot of great guests. Uh, we've talked a lot about math and academia. We've talked about math at the secondary level. And to a certain degree, we've talked about math at the elementary level. But this episode right here, we're really going to be focusing on our early childhood baby. So we're going to be talking about early childhood development in the math classroom. And the reason why we're talking about that today is because in past episodes, there's been a recurrent theme of teachers just saying, hey, we have a lot of students coming in not being able to meet expectations, you know, within their grade levels as at the secondary stage, but then they don't have the necessary foundation, you know, to do a lot of those more complex skills. So now we have to trace ourselves back to this early childhood stage to see, first off, what's going on, where are these gaps, and what can we do to rectify this situation? So I have two phenomenal ladies who are both good friends of mine who can provide some insight as to how we can go about um, rectifying this issue. So without further ado, I want to bring on 
Isis Span and Coach Tony onto the podcast to talk to us about early childhood education um, within the math context. So let's get in, y'all. Hey, ladies. Hello, hello. Hello. Right, how y'all doing? Doing well, doing well. Doing well, thanks. Yes, so welcome to the podcast. Um, I know Isis, welcome back. You're actually the first guest to now appear on both podcasts, so you make some history today. I should have a certificate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you should, for sure. You definitely should. And then, uh, Coach Tony, good to be connected with you again. Um, so looking forward to this conversation. So both of you all are math gurus in your own right, especially when it comes to early childhood math. So um, before we get into our main conversation, I like for you all to share what I call the mathography. So we all have a math story uh, where we just have this relationship with math. So it may have been some pivotal moments during our early childhood or even another part in our journey where we just said, man, math is a thing for us. This is what we love to do. And this is something that I could see myself teaching or being associated with, you know, in my future. Um, and we all have peaks and valleys when it comes to this journey. So I want to give each of you all a chance to just share your mathography, your, your autobiography in the math context. What does that look like for you all? How did that love for math start and how has it evolved over time? So, um, we'll start off with coach Tony and then Isis, I'll let you go. Okay. So hello to everyone who is listening and or watching. I am coach Tony. Um, I grew up not doing very well in math classes. I actually failed math probably all the way up until, oh, fourth, fifth grade, maybe even sixth. Didn't do well is what it was. And um, there was a specific time when my parents, I'm from West Indian, I'm of West Indian descent. My parents, you know, anyone who knows parents with West Indian descent, they want to talk about everything on the phone. Oh, she's not doing this and oh, you know, can't, can't help her and da, da, da. And so yeah. someone, I think she, my mom was gossiping to somebody and it was a family friend that was over at the house. And um, she said, oh, I can, I can tutor her. I can come back every week and tutor her. And the payment was a ting, the grapefruit soda. So they went to the, the wholesale market and bought boxes and boxes of ting and left it in the library. I was like, whenever Lynn comes, give her one. Um, and so that, I think that was maybe fourth, fifth grade that she came over once a week, every Sunday gave her her ting and she was like, let's look at your work. Let's talk about this. And from then, first of all, Lynn is this beautiful, tall black woman. And I was like, I saw myself in her. Um, and second, I never really realized how much math is just applicable to everything. We just never really put that together. So um, from then I kind of, my trajectory in math shifted and I did very well in high school. Um, and then I managed to go ahead and major in math in, in college and then I went for um, my master's in mathematics education. So that's just the, you know, the way it moved for me. And then in terms of just seeing myself in other kids or them seeing themselves in me, um, I went to visit someone in, that taught me in kindergarten and I went to a school with majority white students and I walked into the nursery hallway and a little black girl stopped me and she was like, you're so pretty, are you coming to teach at my school? And at that point I was just like, and she was like, you look just like me. I want you to come and teach. 
And wow. so that kind of stopped me. And in that moment, I realized how representation is important. Um, and it, it, it made me have that resolve to make sure that I show up for the students that look like me, that can see themselves in me. Wow, that's powerful. All right, Isis, I mean, I kind of know your story, but we don't know your math story. So please go ahead and share. Yeah, so my mathography, I love that, by the way. So math was always, math was always easy for me. Like I didn't have to think about it. And I like that. Um, and I like that there was just an answer. I feel like in reading class, it was like, well, the author could have meant this or the point of view could have been that. But in math, it was like two plus two is four. Bet, I got you. And I like that because that's just my personality. Like I don't like to, I don't like to, to fumble and, and go through different stages. Like I like it to be concrete. And for me, math was that thing as a kid. And also just growing up in single parent household, like moving from house to house, different family members, like that affirmation wasn't always there in the house because it was just too much going on. But when I did a math quiz or when I did those fast facts, my teacher was just like, oh, you're amazing. Like, I love it. So just hearing that and knowing that that was attached to math, I liked it. And it made me, and, and I don't think I really liked the content that much as I did just that celebration as a math student. And I just remember one time and I had to be in like sixth, maybe fifth or sixth grade. And we started talking about negatives. And I had gotten really discouraged because by that point, I was just like, wait a minute. I didn't know that we could go the opposite way on the number line. Like, what's going on? Mm. What's happening? So I was really, like, discouraged, I think, those first few lessons. And then I want to say by Thursday, I had gotten it. Like, and I really understood how I think, like, energy worked. And my teacher called me up to actually do a problem at the board. And back Back then, I guess for me, like when you're called up to the board, you just like, oh, yeah, like I'm a superstar. Everybody going to watch me figure this out. And I just, you know, continue to love to love it because I feel as though it was something that not only was I really good at, but I actually got like that affirmation, that positive affirmation from it when I actually did do it right. And then just, you know, transitioning through middle school, through high school again it wasn't a, a struggle for me, so I didn't turn away from it. So then when I became a teacher and I had to teach math, I realized that I was teaching math the way that I learned math and mm -hmm. the way that it worked for me. And then I slowly started to realize that, oh, like when you teach it, you have to teach it like three, four, five different ways because you're talking to a lot of different math students. And I don't feel like my teacher education program prepared me for that. I don't feel like it prepared it, it prepared me to teach to me, if that makes sense. Like that general kid that loves it, that's engaged with it, that wants to be there. It taught me how to teach to that kid. And it didn't teach me how to teach to that kid that absolutely hated math, that wanted nothing to do with math, that didn't think that they were good at math. So I really feel like I had to train myself how to be a math teacher. I was a really good math student, but I had to train myself on how to be a math teacher. And then once I was at my like fifth year of teaching and I moved from teaching fifth graders to teaching kindergartners, I was like, man, 
Now I have to learn how to teach math 10 different ways <laughs> because some of these kids are completely blank slates. Um, and, and I realized then that, oh my goodness, like I had been to Lucy Calkins, I had been flown out to New York. I had went to all these reading trainings. I went to all these reading professional developments and nobody was talking about math. It was almost like, you're just supposed to know how to teach this thing. Um, and then I found videos from Dr. Nikki Newton and I was just like, Ooh, like, okay. Like I can, like, I can do this. Like I can actually teach this, you know, in a number of ways. Um, and then, you know, just following her, getting her books, um, actually had a chance to actually bring her to like one of the elementary schools where I was. And then that, you know, kind of led to where I am now with the kindergarten counts program and really focusing on, okay, what do four and five-year-olds need to know before they enter into the classroom? And not only what do they need to know, but what resources and tools can I give to their families so they so that we can start working on this at home? Because as much as I would love for math to be present in schools the way it is with reading, it's just not that way. So be, just being very intentional about making sure that we're good on the home front so that once students enter, you know, they'll have all the math tools and the resources that they need to be successful. And it's interesting how you were able to bring the reading component into it, that whole literacy component, because whenever we think about this idea of being literate, and this was something that was mentioned in a previous episode on this podcast where um, one of our guests, uh, her name is uh, Deborah Pert. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Deborah was on here mm-hmm. maybe a couple months ago, and we were talking about this very issue of what it means to be literate. Mm-hmm. And whenever we talk about literacy, we talk about literacy in terms of, you know, words, right? But we don't talk about it. We don't include math literacy within that definition mm-hmm. of literacy. And I'm just wondering, as someone who's taught math at the secondary level for over 10 years, why is it that we don't emphasize that enough at the early stages? Mm-hmm. Like we focus so much on students being able to build phonemic awareness, find logical awareness, and they need to be able to read at a certain level but we don't really put in that same type of energy into math Mm -hmm. or at least there's not as much emphasis on it. So I'm curious to know from y'all perspective, why that is the case. I can go, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I guess it's, there's just a long history of the way we talk about math. Right. And I've talked about this with you before, Kwame, like for me, the language it's a, it's a language, right? And so when we um, when we talk about math, a lot of times when people think about math's place in our life, they're not thinking about everyday life. And my question to the world is where did that start? Because when you talk about English, the minute a child is born, it's like, hello, baby, right? So that when the kids get to school and the kindergarten teacher says, hello, you're expecting a response, right? And that onus has, has been on the parents. Now, Yes, there are some variations in how much a parent would pre- prepare a child to be in kindergarten, but the expectation is that they've been surrounded by their home language, whatever that home language is. And so when we start to look at what the math 
mindset has been over the last few generations in this country, we're looking at something that's always looked at as a foreign. When you get to school, you, you'll deal with that. Not knowing that we're already preloading our students to be successful in some in English in some way or shape or form, whether it's just the baby can't read yet, it's understanding that when the teacher says hello, you respond. That's a lot of front loading that you've done. And people don't realize that. And so when we interact mathematically, which we do every day in multiple situations, I engage in so many Facebook thread arguments about where's math in this and where's math in this. I'm like just going off, right? Um, that translation is not, doesn't, it's not aware that a translation is needed because we don't look at math as a language, right? We don't look at academic math as a language, right? We engage with things, we do things every single day. My biggest stand up on is fractions, right? That's probably the one thing that students swear they can't do, but they over here arguing with their siblings for the same piece of something. Um, and so we never make we never make it say like, hey, this is something that we will translate at very least if you can't translate it to identify like, oh, that's math. And when you when you get to school, your teacher gonna tell you about that. That's fractions. When you get to school, your teacher gonna tell you about that at the very least. If you're not a parent or an educator or an adult who can say like, the word for that is this, and the word for that is that, and the word for that is that, and the word for that is that, and the concept for that is this, and what you're doing right now is sharing. That's actually fractions, right? Um, we don't have that space. And as we grow in this math mindset that has been largely negative as a nation, we lose that ability to then front load for our students to be ready to then say like, here's a translation for what I've been doing every day in my life, right? When I take something from my child, I say, I'm gonna subtract that from you every single time. And it's, it's weird, it's not conventional grammar, but at the same time, when she goes to school and hears subtract, in her mind, she has so many logs of her mother taking something from her. So it's like, oh, subtract, all right. I know whenever my mommy says subtract, it's because something's coming, something's about to get lost, right? And so now you're applying something to, and she subtracted her whole entire life. She takes things away from her siblings. She takes things away from me. I take things away from her. That's subtraction, right? We never really make those connections with that language so that people feel comfortable when they get to school. So it's, it's, a, it's a shift that I'm working to try to help. <laughs> so, and that's interesting because I know with you, Coach, you you do a lot of reels and, and posts of just modeling how you expose uh, your own daughter to math. Um, so I'm wondering, and either you can answer this question, I'm going to just switch this view up because I want to make sure there's some equity here. So there we go. I like this. Um, I'm wondering, just as mothers, how much has motherhood shifted your paradigm as a math educator? Hmm. I don't know if it shifted anything, honestly. I think okay. because remember, I'm I'm not an elementary school educator. So for me, the reason why I got into elementary school content and pedagogy and all that is because the pain points that I exist that, that existed for me teaching cool. middle school. <laughs> I basically became an elementary school educator. That was what forced me to say like something is not working and it needs to change. And the thing about it is being one teacher standing up in a school system, yelling at the top of your lungs, people don't listen, right? You have politicians that don't listen, you have principals that don't listen, oh, do this, you know, we have we have this contract with this textbook company and you know, it, it expires since so-and-so, so you gonna do this. And it's like, but that don't work. Um, and so me doing that research, it was like my daughter was the perfect person to test it on, right? It's like, all right, y'all y'all saying I'm not, I'm not making sense, all right. 
let me prove it to you, right? And so then became my research. Then besides the fact that since I started, I started out teaching 11th and 12th graders. And then once they realized, oh, you went to school for math, you didn't major in math education first, you went to math. I got moved right to middle school because that's the pain point because you have millions of fifth graders that come from all different schools, all different backgrounds, all different, whatever, all different. And then plus the pandemic, you don't know what you're getting when you sit in a sixth grade classroom, right? Mm. Same for ninth grade teachers. So, and, and then it's bigger for sixth grade because elementary is a foundation. The brain is growing at the most rapid rate at those years. And so if it's not, the foundation is not stable, you're going to have a rocky middle school life. So at that point, when I realized, oh, my students don't know this, they don't know how to multiply, they don't know this, they don't know this. I had to go and dig into the standards first. Like, okay, what are they supposed to know? Like, why am I, why are you telling me that my students should do this and they can't do it yet? Then it was like, so what's the, the standard for teaching this? And I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, something's weird. And I'm the person that I will challenge people. I've gotten into trouble all the time because I, I don't really do what people tell me to do. It's, don't know if I should be saying this publicly, but it's true. I guess I got to stand in it. Um, I keep it 100. I got to keep it 100. I, I don't know what to do. If it doesn't make sense to me, you have to convince me. And I, I'm someone I think I, I can, I have an open mind. I understand in the work that we do, we have to have an open mind. Um, but you need to do some convincing and you got to get to it, especially when our babies are involved, right? So me becoming a mother was just my way of being like, I'm going to show y'all, show y'all what it is I'm talking about. And it's been successful. Like she's went viral a few times. I think one of her videos is going viral now because my phone won't stop ringing. I just put it on um, vibrate. It's going off. Um, and so I became an elementary educator for that. And then when I, be when I became an instructional coach, a lot of people were asking for my expertise and how to, you know, so... I don't think becoming a mother changed that. I've always been about making sure that life is an educating experience. And I had a chance when my youngest was born to prove that to people. Like you can do so. You can make life the educating experience and then have school be the connection to be able to prepare your child academically to perform at a high level. Yeah, it's, it's the complete opposite for me because I grew with my kids. Um, so I started teaching when I had... So I had my, my daughters in June. I started my first teaching job in January. So my kids were six months old when I, you know, became a classroom teacher. So by the time they were going to, by the time they were two and three years old, I, I saw so much in schools that I didn't want to be my kids. So I was just like, hey, we're doing letters every day. We're doing your name every day. We're doing numbers every day. We're doing shapes every day. Because when I send you to school, you're not going to be who they talking about in the teacher lounge so so it was really for me it was a big shift because i knew what i didn't want my daughters to be in school but and i also saw what their teachers weren't doing so because i was teaching next door to their teacher and i was sending home things i knew my kid needed to practice and those same things weren't coming home i was just like oh so everybody ain't doing you know what they supposed to do because I know my daughters need to work on this and I'm not getting a resource for this. Like I understand that I'm a teacher, but at the end of the day, you should be sending home, you know, things that children need to practice regardless of the occupation of their, you know, of their parent. So for me, it was just like, I saw my, my kids struggling a lot in math, like very early and I believe it's because of what we talked about, you know, before we started the show, it was sight words and letter sounds and rhyming and syllables and cat, mat, sack and rub in the tub. And I'm just like, 
where's the shapes and where's the counting and where are the unifix cubes and where are the patterns so it was just like they i feel like honestly my daughters were neglected in a lot of that math content and because i was the superhero teacher i missed it mm. and i didn't see what my own children weren't getting because i was so focused on making sure the kids in my classroom got what they needed and i'm honest and and you know not egotistical enough to you know admit the fact that i missed it i missed it at home so when my five-year-old and my three-year-old came along i was just like hey like i'm not missing it again you guys are gonna have hundreds charts and you're and you're going to count like legit when my kids were eating fruit snacks you're gonna count those fruit snacks before you eat them if you open up a pack of goldfish you're gonna count those goldfish you want to eat them you're gonna count them before you eat them and just like now my kids are in the kitchen with me and it's just like all right we're gonna bake cookies i only have a half cup but i need a whole cup of brown sugar so how many half cups do i need to use so i can get to a whole cup so it's really just and because i work with families a lot i have to be an example i don't want to be a hypocrite if i'm going to tell mm -hmm. you that you can cook with your kids to do math and you can shop with your kids to do math like i have to be an example of that in my own household um and a lot of times you know when families are listening to researchers or, or going on youtube or, or looking at different things like we have individuals a lot of times telling families what to do but it's not really their lived experience so we widen that gap even more because i can't really trust that i can't really trust what you're saying because i don't know if you if you can live that life but if I can turn on my camera like Coach Tony is doing and record my child or go live and show me working, teaching and holding my one year old on the hip while we talk about math, like now I have your buy in and now you can trust me. So motherhood did play a lot. And, and I think it's because I'm really big on family, like I'm really big on making sure that especially black families know how to get the math job done and i know i can't be that example without being that example like they, they they really have to see you living it out for real before they actually are going to you know buy into it and make sure that they're doing it with their kids and know that they can do it with their kids too mm. y'all speaking some facts right now but i definitely want to stay on that basic foundational skills for a second but we're going to transition into what i call the show your work segment so when well, we all math teachers right it's one of our favorite phrases to say kids come up to our desk they have their work they probably just shown us answers we have there's no evidence of how they got these answers we're like all right i need you to show your work i need to see your thinking i need to know that you truly understand what i've taught you because sometimes you can learn more about what a student is able to do from how, from the process they took to get to that answer. That's just my thought about that, right? I firmly believe that. And so when we talk about uh, show your work in this context of the show, we talk about receipts. So both y'all got receipts. That's y'all work. You know what I mean? Uh, we're going to talk about play, math, grow with you, coach. We're going to talk about kindergarten counts and fundamentals, um, and learning, all that good stuff. But I want to stay with the foundational math skills for a second because 
I have a four-year-old son who has become a phenomenal reader. And I feel like my wife and I have done a pretty good job of really fostering that love for reading. But if I if I'm gonna be transparent, I don't think we spend as much time with the math, which I which is ironic because you would think me being a math teacher, I would spend more time with that. But I think because of how society has conditioned us to really focus on reading, 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 I really just stayed on that because I wanted to make sure that by the time we got into you know, pre-K, all right, you're going to be able to have some fluency. You're going to be able to have some phonemic awareness and find logical awareness and, and be able to decode and break down words, which he can do. But I'm I'm curious to know from, from both of you, were those specific um, foundational math skills that early childhood learners should learn so that they don't encounter some of those issues that our older students encounter when they get to middle school level or even the high school level. So, um, Coach, I'm going to let you start off with that one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I would say in terms of just, I mean, start with counting. And honestly, when you when you are counting, there's so much more that happens, right? So um, addition is happening right? Awareness of objects are happening. And the situation that someone has with counting um, is real, right? So I think what many people need to realize is that just like was said, you can find anywhere to implement counting. What I've sometimes realized is that if you are have in the forefront of your mind that you are finding educational opportunities for your child, they will be everywhere. When I drive with my daughter in the car, it's like, how many cars you see? How many snacks you eat? And right, everything is, is, is about counting. Like math, when you get down to it, is a form of counting something. Of course, as you get advanced, you're counting in different ways. But to start counting, to identify numbers, um, and then to be able to manipulate your hands. I think it's powerful to do that before students get to school. Um, when it comes to adding, like my baby, she'll, you know, if I, if I do this right now, if I go get her and do this and this, she'll go two, and I go like that, and she'll say plus one equals, and she'll count them, three. And so in terms of what we're doing when we do anything with our babies, we need to be able to say, okay, this is what you're doing, and narrate it. Narrate, narrate, narrate. And that goes for any subject, honestly, our life should be like, we should be the narrators of our, our baby's lives. We're giving them a bath. We're, we're, we're eating with them. We're cooking with them. We're whatever the case may be. And you'll find that the math is, exists, but you have to be able to be, have that in the forefront. You can't forget. And so a lot of times I'm reminding caregivers, I'm reminding my husband, did you tell her what that is? Did you say what that is? Did you, did you, and, and to be honest, you need to read to do math. So you haven't done your son a disservice because to be able to encounter situations and reason on those situations and say, but that's not fair, or that needs to be done, or you need to put these together, you have to be able to have that understanding. So reading, huge. Please do that with your babies. Do it all day, every day. Please, please, please. Because when you get to middle school with these kids and they are not able to read for understanding and comprehension, it moves them away from situations that they can relate to. 
right? Because we're moving into learning conceptual understanding in middle school and students love telling stories in elementary school. They love hearing stories. They love talking a lot. So we remove the one thing that can connect them to math concepts when we don't allow them to read because then we don't have, we don't give them the ability to read a story that they probably are familiar with or would have loved to tell when they were in elementary school. So to give someone the ability and the gift to really be able to read at an early age is phenomenal. And then to narrate your child's life, please, 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 anything that you're doing. My child, when we put on socks, one sock plus one sock equals, and I put a feet together, two socks. Now she'll put a feet together for me. She'll come and say, everything she sees two of. Now one plus one is two, one door plus one door is two doors. And I'm like, don't play with the doors, right? Um, <laughs> but now she's narrating her own life right? She's she's doing things. If we go up the steps, it's like I'm counting. Every single time I pick her up and take up the steps, one step, two steps. Now that she's crawling up the steps by herself, you hear her one, two, three, ten steps. I mean, I'm like, yep, there's ten steps. Um, and so that way now when they sit into in story time and their situations, right, hopefully math gets more situational as we evolve as a nation that's trying to be aware of math education. You're, you're able to relate these stories to stories that you had in your childhood, and it's not a foreign concept to encounter math. And then as it gets to middle school, when they have to read these stories, they don't feel like they're in a foreign land, right? They can identify the story because they have that comprehension ability, can pick up the math and then do it. So um, ISIS, um, so Coach Tony talks about the importance of us having that number to word recognition, right? So yes, we do need to emphasize counting, but we also need to make sure that our kids are reading as well so they can continue to develop those skills. Right. But math is a part of our literacy because you have to be able to recognize that, all right, it's not just a matter of us being able to point out the numeral 10, for instance. Right. I need to be able to see the word 10 T-E-N, mm -hmm. yeah. in a sentence, in a mm -hmm. book. So that's where the literacy component comes in. So I, I want to know from you, um, what are some other skills that we need to emphasize other than the counting piece right? Um, foundationally? Yeah, so everything she said, piggyback a thousand percent. Um, and while she was talking, I actually pulled something up. So before we even get to all of that, Mm -hmm. I have to stand firm in the confidence piece. So children have to know that they know that they know that they can actually do math. So we have a we have an actual affirmation that we say. And thanks to Deborah, we actually are using the term mather. So all my students say, I am a mather. I can read numbers. I can write numbers. I am a great mathematician. So before we even hop into lessons or or do anything, it's them believing that you can do math. It's them knowing that you are math. And for, you know, children of color, it's understanding that math looks like me too. Because a lot of times they don't want to get into it or they don't even want to start it because they don't feel like they belong in math. Like they see numbers and they just like, oh yeah, no, you know, that's not me. So just like we want our kids to be, represented on tv shows and movies um we still have to want them to be represented in math as well so even when my daughters are counting and when they're you know working on shapes and patterns like i've made them workbooks that have a picture of a girl on the front with some locks and some curly 
you know, Afro puffs because I also want them to see themselves. Like my my three-year-old son loves the new Power Ranger Dino Fury because there are two black Power Rangers in it. So I want him to feel that same way about math. And that's just as simple as, like I said, those clip arts where they can see themselves. My daughter who's conquering cerebral palsy, her workbook has a little girl in it in a wheelchair right on top of her number chart because I want her to see herself in that. So while we're counting and while we're recognizing numbers and while we're working on, you know, shapes and patterns, it's also important for you to see yourself in this content. And we don't do a good enough job in schools with actual representations that look like our kids. So if you are working in a daycare or if you're working at Head Start in preschool, just being intentional about pulling out pictures and pulling out clip arts that are representative of children of color. Because if they see themselves in that content and they see themselves and, and their names, and as much as I love word problems about John and Sally and Sue, we need <laughs> word problems about Nia and Taekwon and Rayshawn and Kanidra because those are who those those names represent our children. And we do them a disservice when all of the word problems are about Jack and Jill running up a hill, but not about, you know, our kids and the actual names that represent their culture, the places that represent their culture. So when we're talking about foundations and, and early math, we have to make sure that our children are represented, both in the pictorial sense where they see themselves and using their names as well. So in workbooks, I, I have George Floyd in a word problem. I have Trayvon Martin in a word problem. I have Mike Brown in a word problem because our children need to understand that they they deserve a space, you know, in math as well. And that's that's what I, I don't I don't want to get on my soapbox, but foundational, yes, counting, confidence, um, representation in clip arts, representation in the names. Though that that's where we need to start so that when they get to fourth and fifth grade, they'll understand that they belong in math and it won't be something that they're afraid to engage with. And I think what you're talking about with representation, Isis, is just this idea of just counter narratives. Right. Um, there's been so much conversation around counter narratives. Uh, particularly in this day and age where you have a lot of people talking about the importance of teaching with the critical lens, right? So it's not just about representation. It's about students being able to see themselves um, in the word problems, seeing themselves in films, seeing themselves in children's books and in all these other places. So I I'm wondering... What does that counter narrative look like for our youngest learners? Because I know for um, our older students, you know, yeah, they could watch Hidden Figures. They can watch, I don't know, Jingle Jangle, where they're doing, you know, more complex math, um, you know, at those higher levels. But we want to see those same figures at the early childhood level who look like, you know, y'all and I, right? So what are your thoughts about that? 
I think that is, I think that's encompassed in, in getting more educators that look like the students that we serve. When students at that age, what they're looking up to with the adults that take care of them, they're emulating the adults that take care of them, right? We're going to be looking at who is their number one influence, right? And at some point that becomes their parents and, and or any other adults. And as they transition to school, that time shift is huge, right? That time shift is huge. So just like that, can that I literally walked in that hallway and I had told her that I was a teacher. She, she asked me who I was because they don't really, this was pre-COVID, but they didn't really just let anybody up in that school building anyway, right? It's a school building in Manhattan, you know, Midtown Manhattan, Starbucks and Cinderella's around there and all that. And so me walking through the hallway, she automatically noticed a stranger. It wasn't even something that was normal. She had to ask me who I was. And I said, you said, she said, are you a teacher? Like, who are, you know, who are you? I said, I'm a teacher, but not here. And immediately she wanted me to be her teacher, right? And so it's like seeing somebody that looks like you is, is powerful, especially for little kids because they can notice, but they may not always have the word track to mention that they notice or that it affects them or that they care. Right. So even with me, with my stepdaughter, the way I did my hair and the way she wanted her hair done was always a notice until she was able to say, like, your hair is long and straight. And I'm like, yeah, it is right now. But sometimes it's, it's big and puffy, too, like yours. And I, at that point, I was like, oh, I need to show her my afro more often because she's watching. As the students get older, they have the media they have their friends, they have different things and they can do independent research. But our kids' independent research is what we put in front of them. So employing more teachers that look like our babies, right? Just like what was mentioned, we need to make sure that the, these kids are represented in the picture books that they see. Um, I, I love Marley Dias's work with the Thousand Black Girl books. Um, her mom's a dear friend of mine. And, and when I talk about her work has been so important because it's crazy that kids can pick up a book and not see themselves. And I went to a school with where I was the only black child in my grade until maybe third grade. Um, and so when I went home, the requests I was making to my mom were crazy. Why is my hair like that? People said that they I'm bald when, I, you know, when my hair is braided because they could see my scalp, but they didn't understand what cornrows meant, right? Um, and so the exposure at that point was only of people who didn't relate to me and I couldn't understand my own heritage, my own history, or what it was that I needed to conquer to be able to achieve a mathematical understanding or an ELA understanding, whatever it was in school. So what that may look like is just placing our children in the path of greatness that looks like them so that that can be their frame of reference until they're able to do their own research and start to make their own decisions and their own judgments about things. Yeah, and I'm sure. gonna and I'm and I'm going to say that we have to make black children the curriculum. In a perfect world, in a perfect world, we could place black black educators in classrooms and that would be perfect. But we know that's not going to happen. But at the end of the day, if you are a white educator and you have 21 kids and 20 of them are black, that needs to be your curriculum. It doesn't matter what Pearson say, it don't matter what McGraw Hill say. Those kids take pictures of those kids, use those kids' names, use those kids' experiences, use those kids' curriculum 
and teach them how to count, teach them how to make patterns, teach them, you know, how to write their numbers using who they are, because we're not going to get, we can't push pause on black kids being great in math because we're looking to recruit, recruit black teachers. And I feel like a lot of people are starting to use that, especially in the, in the early childhood world as a cop out, like, oh, we don't have enough. So we can't make this culturally relevant for them because we don't have an adult to teach them this. No, you who's in that classroom right now that may not be black can use those kids as the curriculum. You know, you know what your goals are for the year. You know what they need to master. Now use, like I said, their lived experiences, bring their families into the classroom, bring their cultures into the classroom and teach them from that lens. And don't only go by what the law says. Like I, like I had a teacher before say, oh, well, we only have to teach them five letters. But if they master those five letters in the first five months, like, what are you going to do for the rest of the, the rest yeah. of those four months? Like, are you like, what are you like? What do I don't understand? <laughs> so it's just like you if we're really as educators, if we're really serious about children thriving and children being successful and, and meeting goals and mastering and being proficient, then we have to push past what we're told to do and do what we know is right. And if the kids need it, then you have to teach it. And if it's early elementary and you have 90 minutes for ELA and they're only allotting you, because I've been in situations like this where they allot you 30 minutes for math and 90 minutes for reading. If you know your kids need math, then you switch your schedule and you don't be afraid to, to do that because of, you know, what a principal may say or what someone else may say. You, you, we have, as educators, we have to be, bold enough and, and and strong enough and not be so fearful where we have to speak up for kids and say, my kids don't need an hour and a half. They're good on that, but they do need 60 minutes of math. So my schedule looks like this because my kids need this, regardless of, you know, what you're told to do. I think early childhood. So I was just going to say, and I, I completely agree because we, you know, we can't stop what the work just because we don't have enough teachers as it is. Forget black and white teachers. They ain't teachers to begin with, so we're going to have to get what we Yeah, they pull up from South America right now. <laughs> they yeah. so but then I feel like also, too, as like a slight pushback, when I think about, I had a, and I don't know how I can keep this memory, but when I was in kindergarten, my teacher was white, and she, I don't, like, I was the only black person in that class which it was a K-1 class. It was a split K-1 class. And they, they, she showed the kindergartners what to do and the first graders what to do. I was in kindergarten. The kindergartners was, were supposed to write the letter in between the bigger lines. The first graders were supposed to write the letters in between the smaller lines. And my mother had done taught me how to read and all that before I got to school. So it was like, I'm gonna do the first grade work because she's gonna be proud of me. I did the first grade work and she screamed at me. She erased my book and told me to stay in my place. Oh. I will never forget that. I don't even know, like, I can't remember many things from kindergarten, but she was so upset and she ran and got that pink eraser and she erased the entire thing. She said, that's not your work. Mm. And so it's, it's crazy because I can never forget this. I, I I remember the composition notebook. I remember where I took it from. I remember where I put it back. I remember feeling so dejected for the rest of the day. And I was in kindergarten. You mm. write the letter A. And I was like, I can write the letter A in small ones. She's going to be so happy with me. She's going to give me B. And she erased my work and told me to write it bigger. And I say that to say, 
even a few days ago, I sat in a bar with somebody and I was just talking. And after a while, I, I realized like, this lady is, is not comfortable with me. And in terms of like the way she was saying it, she was trying to see like what type of black person I am, right? And I started to realize like the questions you're asking is because you see me as a threat already and you don't even know me. Wow. And I didn't escalate the situation because it's like, I didn't have time for all that. But at that moment, it's like, we don't know who our students are going to be up against. And so for me, I, I really, and I can't just sit here and say like, this is the answer and I'm going to leave the work because I'm not at the moment. Like I'm so busy, but the, I think we need to shift into a community focus for younger younger right. students than a, than a school focus. School will do but so much and prepare you for so much and help you with so much, but you will not really get to know if the person that you're is teaching your child sees them as a threat until they're seen as a, you know, as until it comes out. And that may take the whole entire year when you realize my mom said she stopped by that classroom. She told me this years later and I was sitting on the outside of the circle. Like the kids were sitting in a circle and I was like slightly behind them. She said she, oh. she had picked up the attendance so many times and seen that, that she had to say something and they denied it. But little, little, little moves that people don't realize could be affecting our kids. And so it's like, we can say, hey, white educators do the work and many white educators will attempt to. And in some time, their inability to have a, a view that's wide enough to understand what we've been through, they may miss the mark. And then you have people that just see black kids as a threat, period. And so in terms of playing that Russian roulette, like I always told myself, like, not my kid, right? I don't care. Like they made, she has white teachers now, but I already know that I've prepared her. And I know that parents may not always have that time and accessibility, but we need to start to focus on community involvement in terms of making daycare schools, right? That daycare down the street can do just that much more to become certified to teach these babies something, right? We we can stop by and say like, this is what you need to do to, to implement this first curriculum, get them ready for kindergarten, give these parents somewhere that they can go where they know like it's around the corner, but they care. Right. So that the readiness is there they have that um, they have that role model that that looks like them and they can build faith in their community having their back if they find out that they may be perceived as a threat if they find out that their teacher has been doing these racist practices in subtle right mm -hmm. I didn't have the words to tell anybody what I felt that day but I felt and I, to this day I remember it which is so crazy because I do not know how but it was a jarring moment for me because she embarrassed me from the whole class erasing work that was spectacular <laughs> right? Um, and so imagine if I had internalized that to think like, well, I can't do this work or I can't push myself. I can't. That All that takes is that one person to stay mm -hmm. on that, to never try again, you mm -hmm. know? And so to have your community reinforce mm -hmm. your strength and reinforce your power is, is big. And as we notice that everything getting more expensive and mommy and daddy got to work, those who have that time and ability need to go and put the effort into making these daycares become like, the preparation and not just the watch, right? right? Helping students to have that. So in case they come up against anything, there's still community community involvement to raise them and push them. Right. Mm. Yeah. Whew. But that story right there that you shared is the very reason why the mathography is so important, right? That story, because if you're able as a teacher to trace back to when that student fell out of love with math mm. it provides context mm. for their current struggles in math right mm -hmm. and then um to your point about 
the importance of going back to a more community-based education model. In order for that to happen, that requires us to reinforce the fact that not just parents, but community members are stakeholders of this educational process. And I think the one thing that so many of our parents have done is we've put way too much faith into our schools, way Mm -hmm. too much faith into our schools, and we've given them the benefit of the doubt um, at times where they just don't deserve that benefit of the doubt, you know, and it's led to so many of the issues that we're still continuing to talk about as we speak. So we really need to help parents and families reclaim that power because so many of the le- so much of the legislation that we're fighting against right now is on the table right now because you know a lot of parents just weren't aware of what was happening behind the scenes. They just weren't aware. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not going out there and voting, right? In your local elections, if you're not doing those things that we talk about every couple of years, that's what leads to legislation that we have right now. Right. You know, just as an example. So um, I totally agree with everything that really that you're saying, Coach, and even what you were saying, Isis, just about um, the importance of really just staying on top of our children's, you know, education, um, especially in the case of math. Uh, because that's what's going to allow them to accelerate their growth. But I had um I got one more question before we um get to our lightning round. And I want I want the two of you all to talk about your respective companies. So I know um, Isis, you have Kindergarten Counts, and I know with uh, Coach you have Play Math Grow. So I'd like for each of you all to just share a little bit about the missions of your companies and and just what kind of services um, you're providing um, from each of those. Right. Yeah. So I can go first. So our company is Fundamentals of Learning and our main program that we have right now is called Kindergarten Counts. So 2020 and everything shut down and kindergarten kids all across the country were getting packets of information. I was just like, whoa. I'm like, this is not going to work. Like, I spent way too many years in kindergarten teaching kindergarteners to understand that them getting packets of information were not going to lead to success. So, excuse me, we started Kindergarten Counts as a pilot program. So we wanted to pilot it to 50 families in the city um, for four weeks to see how, you know, we could we could help them as they learn and they progress with math. So after that pilot program, we were able to actually do a 36 week long um, program with an additional 25 families so that those so that we could be with those families throughout the entire school year. So Kindergarten Counts is built to be with families and follow families for 36 weeks. Now, families can choose different variations of the program if they would like to lessen those weeks. But our intent was for us to be there. We didn't want to show up for a week or two and then families, you know, get new content or get new things that they needed and and they didn't really know how to navigate that space. So in those 36 weeks, we go through all of the standards that kindergarten students across the country are learning. And these are not just for 
public school families. These are for families in private school. These are for families that homeschool just so that they have that, that foundation in the very beginning, because a lot of fam, a lot of people in the education space don't understand that families don't know what we mean when we say subitize and wreck and wreck and decompose and compose. So when those children were coming home with these topics, Families didn't understand what they were saying because that math language at that time was foreign to them. They didn't understand what the children were doing. And if you can imagine a four and five-year-old doesn't really know how to explain, even if they know what to do, they don't know how to explain to an adult what they're actually doing. So kindergarten counts was really built so that four and five-year-olds, no matter what state they're in, no matter how they're what they're learning, they have those tools and they have those resources to navigate that pre-K and kindergarten year. So once they get into first grade and they start these more complex um, math strategies and, and math standards that they'll know, hey, I can use this tool, this tool and this tool to get to the answer instead of maybe just using my fingers or putting it in my brain and counting up. Like we really teach them about hundreds charts and number lines and really how to use those math tools and how to get to the answers in a variety of ways. And the biggest part of our program is our parental engagement and our community engagement aspect. So we have moved to now not only working with the students, but actually bringing in families and training families on the kindergarten standards and teaching them how to use these resources. And next year, we want to work on Kindergarten Counts actually being a national program where we bring families in, we train them, they become experts on kindergarten mathematics. They can go out, start to train other families because we want to make sure that we have the ability to set families up to, to be successful where they don't have to depend on the system, like we were just saying, to actually teach. They'll have the tools, they'll have the resources so that they can teach their children themselves, whether, like I said, they're teaching full-time as a homeschool family or whether they're just making sure when my child gets home from school, I'll know exactly what, I'll know exactly what, what I need to do in order to, to help and support them. So that's what Kindergarten Counts aims to do. We want to make sure that children are fully ready to move into first grade to do those to first grade and beyond to do complex math to understand that they are math that math looks like them and we're going to start at the very foundation giving them that giving them those tools and resources so uh play math grow is a subsidiary of my company coach tony's table so coach tony's table has a few programs within it um, Play Math Go is math tutoring and math homeschooling. So I currently homeschool some students completely homeschool. They do not go to school currently. I am their teacher. Um, but the other programs that are in Coach Tony's table is Teach Them Yesterday. That's the program for parents of students from, or their students too, of children from zero to three. So the brain's processing power is the strongest it will ever be between zero and three years old. Strongest it will ever be, right? So. It's about being intentional at that time to find in the environment um, stimulating enough to let it be your child's teacher and how to facilitate that. So I do monthly webinars. I actually am going to do a home audit tomorrow where I kind of follow the 
parent and child around for the day and look for opportunities to include learning to help the uh, not teachers, but parents are teachers. Parents develop uh, educational routines that could benefit their children. Um, and then I am an educational consultant. So I am big on teaching the whole teacher. So while it is focused in math and math pedagogy, I also help teachers develop their systems in their classroom because systems is huge and it's not the same as organization. I help them develop the right math mentality and math talk. I help them to develop an equitable lens in the classroom, and then I help them to develop a conceptual view of educational standards a trimester before they have to teach it so that they're ready to um, adapt it to who their kids are and not be afraid of the work because many teachers have learned procedurally and then in a time of flight or flight, they or if they have no time to plan, they're going to revert to what they learned, which may not be the way that our students need to learn. So I help teachers engage with material in those ways so that they can be all that they can be for their students. And as y'all can see, or here, if you're listening to us, these ladies do it all. Um, and that's why they're here today, because they're just phenomenal what they do. Ooh, I wish we could go on for another hour, but I want to be respectful of both of y'all time. So we're going to go into this lightning round to wrap things up. So I have a few quick hitter questions. Um, and I'll start off with this one. Favorite math concept to learn or teach? I'll go first. I love teaching algebra because um, people don't realize that algebra is just operating with things that you don't know in temporary. So to be able to just connect that and see parents, kids, everyone's light bulb go off when I say like, hey, if you're trying to go to the movies and you don't know how much the ticket costs, you're doing algebra by saying two children and one adult. That's algebra just operating with the unknown until you have a figure for it. And they're like, oh, that's all it is. So I love being able to start with that and, and you know, see the light bulbs go off and just let let it run. But I love I love algebra and everything about it. I love teaching kindergarten because I'm a genius and I know everything. <laughs> it's so it's so foundational that that I'm I'm just a genius in it and I love feeling like a genius. But no, kindergarten is that area where you see the growth immediately. Like one day, like one hour before, they had no idea what a hexagon was. And now an hour later, they know all about it. And it has six sides and they're going around and they're trying to find hexagons everywhere. So it's that grade where I can, where it's that instant gratification for me. So I love it. Um, but, when, but as a student, uh, I love multiplication. I love figuring it out. I love breaking it apart. I love doing it in different ways. So that's the thing that I love to learn. Man, so you do it all. You do um area model, you do yes. uh partial and, products, yeah. lattice method. You you just do all the methods, huh? I do, I do. And we call oh. it the standard algorithm grandma's way. That's what I used to call it. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> all right. Love that. Okay, so let's um let's flip the script here. How about the most difficult math concept to learn or teach? Either one. I would say the convention with English language. So when we're reading math problems or we're talking about situations, when students are trying to, when they're trying to say what they mean and mean what they say, mm -hmm. it's very difficult. And so especially when our, our children grow up speaking a different language than the conventional American English, right? Um, we have to be able to teach that grammar shift 
that allows them to interpret word problems and then say what they mean and mean what they say. So teaching academic grammar or mathematical grammar is so important because when you say subtract or divide or this from this or this, people don't realize that it's, it's, it's a constant decision to use the grammar that communicates mathematical um, concepts properly. And so for me, one, I have to then validate my student because I knew what they meant. But then I go, let me show you how to say this, right? Let me show you what, you're, what you mean when you say this. If you're in a room with an academic person, they're gonna understand this versus what you said. And um, that because they leave school and then switch to the language that they speak at home or how they speak when they're comfortable, it's a constant work to be teaching academic or mathematical grammar. Sorry right. guys, my, my phone decided to be rude. Um, okay. So I would say, ugh, simple as it sounds, I would say regrouping has been the most difficult thing to teach. Um, because when, before they get to me, somebody has taught them to carry the one. So I spent about a week teaching them that we don't carry anything and that we're looking at place value. Exactly. Um, so because place value isn't taught like it needs to be <laughs> when it's time to regroup, um, and put, you know, tens and ones and move things around, it gets really, really difficult for them to understand and see, um, because because foundational place value isn't being taught. Um, for me, I guess, I think the most difficult thing for me, I guess I would say, um, is standard algorithm when it comes to division. I can do it my own way, but the standard algorithm division still kind of get me. <laughs> so I would have to say those are the two for me, teaching the regrouping without that foundational place value and then like standard algorithm division. I don't like long division. I just say that. <laughs> okay. So with standard algorithm, are you talking about when the, is it difficult for you when the divisor is a double digits? Or I, you know, I think it's the triple for me. And I, and I, and oh, I'll true. say, yeah, I'll say the triple for me because I'm just like, I just want to multiply and make my groups until I get there. I don't necessarily want to do the subtraction anymore. And that's why that's why because I've learned to teach it in so many different ways that now I have my favorite strategy. So when I actually have to do like the standard algorithm because I'm teach because I'm like leading an example, I don't want to do it that way anymore. So I think uh, I've learned too much. <laughs> cool. All right. Um, I would love for each of you to Name one person that you would love to be a guest on this podcast. Each person give me one name. Ooh, Ooh a guest on this podcast. Oh dear. Uh -huh. to, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I would have to say Dr. Nikki Newton. She's still she's still just one of my favorite people when it comes to math. Um, yeah. I would have to say her. She's just, she's still one of my favorite. She's one of my favorite math. Ah, cool. I'm going to throw a wrench in this one. This is kind of left field, but here you go. PJ Morton. Lamar? Oh, like the oh, like the musician. Ooh. Singer, PJ Morton. Ooh. All right. I'll take Morton. For math, because one, his musical prowess means that his math brain must be his analytical brain. And I think just picking apart what he does 
mm-hmm. would give an insight to, to kids that are like him. Because Ooh. I can I can imagine that there are some adults that misunderstood that man. Mm-hmm. And he has been someone who's blazed an independent trail where he talks about things that are not readily talked about and he stands in his own truth. And just seeing him play as a, I, I'm a musician myself. So just seeing him play and understand that for you to have that caliber of fine tuning as a musician, you your math mind must be really up there. And I would really like to pick his brain and see how how much he's able to articulate about what goes on in his head. I like that. I, I love how she finessed it. Just be <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's about math, but you know, yeah, I just like PJ Moore. He's a musician. You know? <laughs> no, I, I, I respect I, I mess him. With, I mess with you. Wonder. Both of them, I, I really want to, I really want to know about the math brain that they have. Yeah. He did it all and didn't wasn't able to see. So someone has to accommodate for him as well, right? And the thing about it is we can have those kids in our classroom and not realize mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. That's the big part. Many yeah. people wait until the person is accepting a Grammy or an Emmy and being like, oh, you never know. Let's look at the students we have now and the differences that they have. And what is it that we're seeing in them? What is it so that cool. we can identify from them? Mm-hmm. Music is all math. And when oh, I yeah. hear this man's, when I hear this man's riffs, and when I hear all that, it's like these skills that you're calculating in your head. You have to have that kind of analytical view. And I would love to know what school PJ Morton was like. I would love to know when he started to develop that love and how that worked, and what right. that what that mind does. That's all. I would love to to see that conversation go down. I'll, I'll ask him on August second at his concert. Are you going? Yeah, I'm going in July. Oh. First, all right, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. For me. I got you. I'm. I'm a, Oh wow! Okay, PJ Morton. <laughs> so PJ Morton, if you're listening to this, we'd love for you to come on to the podcast. We're all big fans of you, so come on down, brother. All right, uh, Coach Tony, yes, and Isis, thank y'all for coming on the podcast. It's always wonderful to catch up with you, ladies. Um, before we sign off. Just one more time, let people know how they can connect with you on social media. Also, feel free to share um, the websites for the programs you've named so they know where to go. Okay. Well, once again, I'm Coach Tony of Coach Tony's Table. Uh, If you go to www.coachtonystable.com, T-O-N-I-S, coachtonystable.com, um, you'll see all of the programs. It's like a little lattice there that you can click on any of the programs that I am currently operating with. And there's a big old tree in the middle of the first row. That's the play math row where you can click and learn more about the math practice that I do. Um, the zero to three program is called Teach Them Yesterday. And you can follow me on Instagram at play math row. And most of the other social medias are also at play math row. Good stuff. I am Isis Span. Once again, you guys can go to isisspan.com. All of our programs and services are listed there. We have a brand new homeschooling with Miss Span tab that we are very excited about. So if you're a homeschooling family, check that out. And our pro- uh, we also have a store. So our products are there. We have a lot of um, merchandise that we're actually going to be presenting this weekend for Juneteenth. So we have four new products that are all about um, just celebrating and lifting Black children and math. Um, we also have a couple of sight word um, products that we're going to be um, releasing on Juneteenth weekend as well. And then Fundamentals of Learning is our main page 
um, on Facebook, on YouTube. We also have um, a channel there as well where you can find tutorials and lessons that we have um, recorded and placed on there as well. But of course, on isisfan.com, all of our social media handles are at the very bottom of our website if you guys would like to stay connected. And real quick plug for those who want to learn more about ISIS. ISIS is one of the original guests. Okay. So we're in what? So we're about almost 115 episodes in with our staple podcast. I didn't talk educators live. She was like in the, I was in the twenties when I had, I think ISIS on. So this is almost two years ago. So it's just so dope to see how a lot of the former guests evolve from when I'm talking to them up until now. So, yeah, if y'all want to go check out her um, first interview, y'all can go on the YouTube channel and it's right there. And you can listen to her whole story. Thank you. All right. But ladies, thank you again, and we will definitely be connecting soon. So wish you all a good rest of the day. Thank you for having me. Right. <laughs> all right, y'all. So we're about to end another episode of I Think, well, not even I Think Talk Educators Live. See, this is what happens when we have two podcasts. Another episode of Radical Math Talk. <laughs> And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, y'all. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcast. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk for numeral four, educators.com. I'll say it one more time. Identitytalk for educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.